You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and having animal sidekicks. This is season one, episode four, Princesses. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. Episode four. Did you think we'd make it this far? I had my doubts, but I was keen to talk about princesses, so it's worth sticking in it. Excellent. Yeah, this season, we realized after we started recording that the season's theme was archetypes. And as we walked through different fantasy and sci-fi archetypes, we realized that princesses was such a great one across different genres. I really am excited for this topic because it covers famous science fiction heroines like Leia, but then we also get into Disney. We're going to get into Disney princesses and maybe even talk about my favorite video game of all time, Legend of Zelda. So any uh, any news in your life these days? Just settling into being in my church. How about you? Yeah. So as we record this, we are a few episodes of recording into the podcast, but we just released the first one on all of the podcast apps and a bunch of our friends listen to it. And as we predicted in episode one, our D&D group really, really enjoyed it. So hopefully they're still listening now that it's episode four. And they had some helpful feedback and comments, like the fact that now I know shipping predates the Harry Potter fandom, but was coined from, what was it? The X-Files. X-Files. Yeah, that was interesting. When they started shipping. I learned something new. And I'm working on how often I say the word um. It's a life project there. It was cool today, though. I, I went to Podbean and subscribed to my own podcast. So I was yeah. like, yes. It's very so cool. I also set up a Twitter feed for the podcast. I know that you're not a big social media what person. Is yeah, but I thought you really like memes. And so I thought maybe I could entice you to take over the Nerdy oh. Christians Twitter account and just post memes on it. I am a fan of Dank Christian Memes, the subreddit, as well as general convention memes for emoji-loving teens. Oh, man. It came out of this big Facebook drama. That's some deep uh, Episcopal cut right there. It's a good minute. The ministry of memes is very important to spreading the gospel in 2019 and beyond. Well, speaking of the scriptures, let's get right into our uh, quotes of the episode. Our scripture quote uh, comes from the book of Esther. When they told Mordecai what Esther had done, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And this is a reading from The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a conversation between Aragorn and Eowyn. What do you fear, lady? He asked. A cage, she said, to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire.
So the scripture quote from this week is from the book of Esther. And when I was thinking about princesses, she's in the Bible particularly, she's the gal I thought of because like so many Disney heroines, she kind of rises from obscurity. She, you know, we love, I think in fairy tales, we love to think about either peasants or princesses. There's not a lot of like fairy tales about the middle class. Mm, um, yeah. and Esther goes from just kind of a, you know, a random woman who gets picked by the king after he sticks his other wife, uh, Vashti, to the sidelines because she won't dance for him. And so Esther has been put into a place of power. And you had mentioned that you had read the line, um, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. So really, she's in a place of central power. She's got the ear of the king, which so many people do not have. And she's able to use that position in order to influence great change and save her people. When we look at the book of Esther, we really have a primer for ourselves about how to use our own voices to help those who are in trouble, to help those who are oppressed, and not just sit in silence because silence helps the oppressor. And Mordecai even says that in the, in the reading, mm -hmm. for if you keep silence at such a time as this, and if we keep silent, even if we are not the ones that are being oppressed, then we are complicit in the oppression. So maybe we can look at some of our favorite nerd princesses and see how they might relate to Esther or be used as a foil to see the development of this, uh, this archetype over time. That's a great idea. Do you want to start with the Disney princesses? Because I think that as the Disney princesses move across the decades, we see them starting with that damsel in distress, very passive princess, and moving to the more modern ones, we see the ones that are much more vocal, much more uh, mirroring the way that we see Esther in the Bible. So apparently Disney scholars have broken up Disney's oeuvre into four general time periods, um, and one of them doesn't have a lot of princesses in it, but we, so we won't talk about that, but there's the classic you got your Snow White, your Cinderella, and again, the original princess, Sleeping Beauty, Aurora. Uh, Snow White's the original. Oh, really? Yeah, she's the, yeah, Snow White was the very first Disney movie. I think yeah. I saw um, them out of order. Sleeping Beauty was 16th, Shit. actually, number 16. I think Sleeping Beauty is actually part of the Dark Ages. But she is so much but more. But she's very much, yeah, that traditional. I, I finally, when I finally saw that movie, I was like, this sucks, because she was, she felt derivative, <laughs> because she was, in my mind, the original. Anyway, okay. It's okay. Hey, um, uh, it's funny how you know I had the puffy boxes of those Disney movies, and I watched <laughs> Cinderella with my kids like once a month. And it's uh -huh. so we have Snow White, who is the the er Disney princess, the very first one, and she is really very very passive. She escapes from the queen, and then you know goes into the sleep and stuff, and then needs the prince to come and do his thing. And Sleeping Beauty falls in the exact same camp. That's like, right. She's asleep. She needs to be kissed, and all this stuff. Cinderella is is a, a little different. I was so fascinated after watching Cinderella about a hundred times with my children, um, trying to find you know some good stuff to say about Cinderella. Mm -hmm. Not not the character, but the movie. I realized that Cinderella actually has a little bit more uh, self determination than she might seem like at yeah, first. Yeah, she's, she's going out and she's getting what she needs. I've read. I've gotten mixed up. I've read so many Cinderella knockoff books, not knockoffs, but like rewrites. Uh, one of my favorite books is Ella Enchanted, mm. which is a much more self-determined princess. Um, so I'm actually having trouble because I don't have children. I haven't seen the Disney movie Cinderella a hundred times. Oh, what oh, moments? Of, what, oh, I have. <laughs> maybe it's in the future. Have you? So what? What 
self-determination did you see in Cinderella that kind of piqued your interest? Yeah, it's really at the very end uh, when the animals are able to break her out of her tower. She rushes down the stairs as the Grand Duke and his little toady are about to leave. And she calls out, you know, may I try the shoe on? I'm here. I'm here. And, and she comes down the stairs. The stepmother tries to block her way and the Grand Duke is doing his duty and is very kind to her in that moment, uh, calling her my child and, and sits mm-hmm. her down. And um, when then the shoe breaks, uh, then Cinderella takes out the other slipper and says, the Grand Duke is crying and like, oh, I failed my mission. And she takes out the other slipper and says, well, I've got the other one. And so there's this kind of wonderful uh, speaking up for herself after this lifetime of abuse, physical, maybe not physical, but emotional and psychological Mm -hmm. abuse from her stepmother. And yet she's still able to to bring her own voice out of it at the end of the movie. And I really do see that as the the beauty, beauty of Cinderella, even if it does then, of course, end with a royal marriage and so forth. And I've noticed in the in just discussing these classic princesses, the they might get more self determination over time, but no one's nothing's at stake beyond their own life and their own happiness. I think we start to see a turn in the Renaissance ones, that beautiful time in the nineties before the internet came along and ruined everything. The Disney Renaissance started with the Great Mouse Detective. Another great Yeah, there you go. But the first princess in the Disney Renaissance is Ariel, then Belle, then Jasmine, then Pocahontas, then Mulan. Now, Adam, remind me, why is Mulan, who married a general, a Disney princess? Oh, I'm so excited about this. So, okay, a little background. There are... There's a a brand of Disney princesses. Not every character in Disney that's a a female character gets to be a princess, even if they seem like they should be a princess. Um, There's a list of 12 official Disney princesses. Um, And the criteria are that you have to be the, the main character of the movie. You have to not have been in a, uh, introduced in a sequel. Uh, You have to, be human or near human. So Ariel, you know, is a mermaid. And Tiana Um, was a frog for a little while. Most of the movie, actually, (laughs) she's a frog. Um, And then the last one, the last criteria is that you have to either be royal, like born royal, marry royal, or, and this is the really great one for Mulan, perform some sort of act of heroism. I love that because that just shows, even if maybe Esther had, had, maybe she... Imagine reimagining that story where she is a serving girl or something. That act of heroism of saving people would qualify as a Disney to be a princess. That princesses, I think we think of um, royalty as having inherent nobility to it, but I like that nobility is not just of birth or of marriage, but of action. Yeah, exactly. And Mulan falls into that camp, and we can talk a little bit more of her. And I want to link her with Eowyn, so maybe we can put those two together. Ah, yes, in a, our cross-dressing, in cross-dressers. cross-dressing princesses. Um, and Moana falls into that group too. Yes, she's the daughter of a chieftain, uh, and I think the main reason she is a princess is the act of heroism, mm. because she falls so outside of the realm of all of the traditional princesses with their princes and and so forth. However much she has a you know an animal sidekick, she has two actually. She just leaves Hey Hey behind. 
Is that no, wait, the pig? Hey, hey, no, sorry. Hey, hey is the is a chicken. What's the pig's name? I don't remember. I, I don't. Well, she leaves them behind. So how are we yeah, supposed to who know? Who cares? So the Renaissance princesses, um, they are. I think they're an interesting hinge between the classic and the modern, mm-hmm. in that they. I mean, Mulan performs an act of heroism. She's not determined by her romantic interests. Jasmine's trying to break out of her shell and her very privileged life. Ariel, similarly. Um, Pocahontas's deal, I kind of haven't seen that movie in a long time. What was up with Pocahontas? Yeah, that's not, I'm, I'm not going to uh, touch that one today. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should. That takes um, a whole other episode. There's a maybe. whole episode in there about, uh, uh, yeah, about colonialism, maybe. So maybe we'll think another another very classic Renaissance one is Belle, who mm-hmm. performs an act of heroism by taking her father's place as the beast's captor. Mm-hmm. So she literally puts herself in someone else's place in order to spare him. She is she again. There's a lot of self determination for Belle. She's always trying to look underneath the exterior. I don't. I mean, I like the Disney Renaissance princesses from like a a nostalgic point, but. Even like re-listening to the music, it doesn't move me the way that the modern ones do. Mm. I mean, you know my deep abiding love for Moana. Oh yeah, you're you're also a little younger than I am, mm-hmm. uh, and so for me, you're what I think six years or seven years younger than I am. Yeah. Everybody my age knows every single word to uh, the Little Mermaid, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Those are the four movies from my sort of second grade to. <sighs> Uh, I don't know, like sixth or seventh grade, somewhere in that range. We know every word of all those movies. So yeah, there is a big nostalgia factor, which of course Disney is profiting on now with the 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 remakes and taking those characters and giving them more self-determination in the remakes. And in some cases in in kind of a a successful way and other ones, not so much. Like let's make, they're making Belle an inventor and then that Mm -hmm. doesn't go anywhere. Well, she also teaches, she teaches a little girl how to read. She does. That's pretty cool. The new movie Aladdin could be called Jasmine, if if we really just focus on her storyline, because they give her a lot more to do uh, in the new movie. She gets her own song. She does, and we'll see what happens with Ariel uh, in in that remake. Uh, that and Mulan will be coming out in the nearish future. Um, but when we talk about these Renaissance princesses, I love the way you said they're they're kind of the hinge between mm-hmm. the traditional ones and the modern ones because there's these peaks at self determination. There's these peaks at at that those acts of heroism, uh, not just being damsels in distress, uh, but they don't necessarily quite get all the way there. It's still all about the love interest for so many of them. Even I mean, Mulan saves all of China, and yet how many of us were not war- you know tickled at the end when she gets the general comes to have dinner at her house. I mean, we, we're still in it kind of for the the romance. That's part of the brand. The, uh, but the song in that, um, I'll Make a Man Out of You, mm-hmm. right? And then then at the end of Mulan, they're, uh, the men cross-dress. That's uh, right, to, to, to sneak to, into to the sneak palace. In, right? So there's this whole switcheroo in that, which is pretty cool because the song, I'll Make a Man Out of You, when we're listening to it, we know as the audience that we're not supposed to believe the words they're singing. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. No, it's, I mean, there's that whole irony of we know that they'll never make a man out of her, but maybe they can make a really awesome female warrior. Right. Because they're singing the song. And then by the end of the song, she's gotten up the pole and gotten the thing off the top or it was yeah. an arrow or something. An arrow. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're singing this great song about men and all this stuff. And then she succeeds. 
And she succeeds not through brute strength, but through her cleverness by taking the weights and like kind of tying them together around the pole. Mm. So she's like a, you know, above and beyond the, she uses not just strength, which she doesn't really have yet at that point in the movie, unless she packs on a lot of muscle during arms day, but she's (laughs) able to use her cleverness to reach the top. And then she breaks out of that mold that had been set up for her by her family and by the, the society, which said that they serve their emperor, um, a man by bearing arms, a girl by bearing sons. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah, see that so, earlier on the movie. And then she uses that same cunning to defeat the Huns when they're in that in the in the snow. Right. And she they they use their um, firework rifle their things. Last, their last like what is that like a bomb? <laughs> yeah, some kind of weird firework cannon combo yeah, thing to yeah. cause to cause an avalanche. To cause an avalanche, right? Um, oh man, we could talk about Mulan this whole time. We could just, the, a whole episode on, on Mulan. So maybe that's, but because she is the latest of the princesses, I think she shows that that turn into the modern era. Mm-hmm. Moving into the modern ones where we have specifically, there, there's a couple, I mean, there's Tiana from Princess and the Frog, who's also kind of, again, in that secondary hinge between the Renaissance and the modern. And then we get Rapunzel, Merida from Brave, uh, Anna and Elsa, and then, of course, Moana. Side yeah. note, Anna and Elsa are not technically Disney princesses because their movie did way too well at the box office and they got their own uh, They get their own brand. Frozen oh. is its own brand, which is why they're not technically in the Disney line of Disney princesses. Okay. They're too, they made too much money to be in that list. So that's part of it. List. If a woman makes too much money, she gets booted from the, <laughs> the lineup. No, no, she is no longer a princess. Well, and I include yeah. those, this other uh, We can still talk princess. about them, but... <laughs> This other princess is not in the official lineup, but I loved Wreck-It Ralph and Wreck-It Ralph 2. And there is the whole scene kind of mocking the Disney princess canon um, when the character when the character of Vanellope von Schweetz kind of crashes into their party and they're sort of listing the characteristics of a, of a princess. And one of the, the final question they ask her is, did people assume your life got better because a big, strong man showed up? And she's like, yes. And they're like, she is a princess. So <laughs> there's a little bit of poking fun, looking back and poking fun. Mm-hmm. There's a meta commentary from oh, Disney yeah. on itself there. On itself. So let's talk about those, those princesses briefly. So Rapunzel, uh, she... Basically, that movie is flipping the damsel in distress because in the end, Flynn is the one that needs to be saved. She has the same issue as uh, Cinderella with a a mother figure who is mm-hmm. uh, manipulating her psychologically. Uh, and then she ends up with Flynn uh, and they're going back to the castle and then he gets captured. And so the end of the movie is her going back and getting those brigands from the little pub. That's right. And, and uh, bringing them back to save Flynn. And so in Rapunzel, it's, or Entangled, excuse me, it's really a flip-flopping of that who is in distress model. Uh, <clears throat> so it's, it's not really a, an original story. It's just which character is being in which role. Right. Which I think is important. Uh, and it's not until we get to Frozen and then specifically Moana that we're, and, and Brave too, where we're dispensing with the love interest trope altogether. So Brave, there's the pressure of marriage and love. And I like that in, in Brave, it gets inverted where she ends up competing for her own hand and winning. That's great. She, that martial prowess is, de- is developed um, and she really uses her skills in order to determine her own fate and her own future. And then the movie ends up really being a story about 
uh, her relationship with her mother. That's right. Not focused on a romantic interest necessarily, but on a very critical relationship in her life. And then in Frozen, we have a similar thing where there are love interests and they use the love interests to deflect us from what the main story is. That's right. Would you even say that the idea of the love interest is maybe even a MacGuffin towards the end? Ooh, uh, yeah, like it is definitely. Anna, it's a propelling Anna to try to find her dear beloved Kristoff. Not Kristoff, Hans. Hans. All these men, they all look like. <laughs> they really do. They're all square-jawed and wavy-haired. Uh, and, and then in the end, though, we realize that, of course, this story was always about the relationship between Anna and Elsa, and the men in the story are very secondary. I was thinking about that that is the true love in the story. And if you think about the idea of the Disney I Want song, the Mm -hmm. ballad where we sing about what we really want, um, Elsa has Let It Go, which is kind of an I Want song. She wants to be free. But Anna's is Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Mm -hmm. She wants, and um, for the first time in forever, she wants human connection. So her wanting is relationship with her sister. Mm -hmm. That's like the cornerstone of her story. And then we see the, again, we're playing on the trope of that traditional Disney princess because it's all about, I need Hans to kiss me. I'll Mm -hmm. get better if Hans kisses me. And then he's playing into it as well. Uh, And then, of course, the the act of true love is an act of self-sacrifice. In the end, she is about to turn into the frozen person when his sword hits her. And so she could be running off to kiss Kristoff, but no, she right. decides to protect Elsa. And that's the moment where uh, her heart begins to thaw. And on Elsa's side, her love for her sister, which she's reconnected with, she realizes that love is the key to controlling her powers. Mm-hmm. So love ends up saving the kingdom, even if it di- looks different from the love we've seen in other Disney movies. And it's that, again, act of heroism going back to Esther. See, Esther is a Disney princess. We didn't realize this. Apparently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the act of heroism for Anna uh, is very similar to to Esther there, because as Esther said at the end of that passage we read, after that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Anna throws herself into the way of Hans's sword. She doesn't know that the fact that uh, that she's turning to ice is going to turn the blow. And so we reach Moana, my favorite... <laughs> I have, have a many lot to plans say. to say. Oh, so much to say. Moana. But one of the sort of basic plots, part of the plot of Moana is there's no love interest. It is a quest of self-determination and of her own heroism. In Moana's act of heroism uh, is really the whole movie. It's not just one moment in the movie, like Anna's with the sword. Mm-hmm. It really is her entire story, uh, starting with her first uh, poor attempt at sailing off into the into the surf where the boat gets battered back. But then she tries again, and she makes it. And then, yes, Maui's there as, as more of the mentor character. Yeah. Checkmark distra- for another distra- episode. Oh, yeah. We can talk about Maui for trickster and mentor. <laughs> That'll Perfect. be interesting. <laughs> Just always talk about Moana. So more archetypes for episodes to come. But then, so she gets out into the water, and then her act of heroism continues as she just learns how to do what she's doing. Uh, and then in the end, uh, we have her placing the heart back into Tafiti uh, and trying to get by the lava monster. 
of Taka. That is so such an act of heroism. I mean, it's terrifying. Right? She, could, she could have easily died. It was pure, so much trust in knowing that this was the right decision to be making. So, and for her, it's not, it really, I mean, there's a self-sacrifice in the sense that, yes, she could perish as, as Esther could, but in the end, it is uh, an empathy with Teka where she realizes, oh, you are Tefiti. Uh, I have the thing that they stole from you. You know, they've stolen the heart from inside of you, but this does not define you. I know I can tear up cry. too. I'm okay. going to cry no, too. Just... That, it's such an amazing moment though. Um, when we get that beautiful walk towards Teka and then the the burgeoning of the new growth. Well, so it's an it's an it's an act of empathy. It's also cle- it's clever mm-hmm. um, in that she's able to see something that other people have not been able to see. She's able to overcome fear of the other, fear mm-hmm. of this monster, mm-hmm. and really see what's behind all that pain and suffering. So I feel like her nonviolent end is also a development. Um, mm. kind of Esther doesn't come about, doesn't bring about change by murdering the guy who wants to kill the Jews. Although he, I think he ends up dying, but oh, yeah, she he, uses, he big time dies. He, he big time dies. Right. But yeah. she doesn't commit the act. She's able to place it in this wider context. Yeah, where, there's a, there is a lot of cunning there. It, it, political yeah. machinations from Esther to move Haman to That's that right. point where he ends up being the a bad guy in the eyes of the king. Yeah, he gets skewered on a pole. If That's you right. The I, story. I've been to Purim celebrations, but everyone just hissed throughout the every time his name is mentioned. So right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so these beautiful acts of heroism that define these modern Disney princesses uh, really bring us back to that archetype of Esther. And then if we move out of Disney. Uh, well, not out of animated Disney, shall we say? Right, we're because we're going to stay in Disney for there's a new Disney princess. New people. Disney princess, Princess Leia, of course, should be in that in that list. Although I think her movies are a little bit too big, like Frozen. Maybe they so, made too much money. <laughs> made a little bit too much money. Um, <clears throat> so, do you mind if I do my my uh, my Princess oh. Leia thing here? Oh, lay it on, go for it. Lay it on. I like that. Oh no. You didn't mean to do that, did you? I hate puns. They do bring me closer to Christ. I just place all of my pain at his feet and suffer. And he joins me in the suffering that puns have brought about. So a couple of years ago, around the release of both Force Awakens and then Wonder Woman, there was a wonderful meme going around, uh, which is a picture of Princess Leia as in A New Hope, and then General Leia in Force Awakens, and then underneath it, a picture of Buttercup from The Princess Bride, and then a picture next to it of Antiope from Wonder Woman, who are both played by Robin Wright. And the meme says, um, I've lived long enough to see my childhood princesses become my generals, my adult my adult generals. And I just love that as a uh, commentary on that move again, from the traditional damsel in distress princess to this more modern heroic figure who really does have self-determination and is able to uh, really affect the plot of whatever story they're in. And Princess Leia, who then becomes General Leia, is one of the precursors of that move, even in the 1977 Star Wars movie. Right. She, she's the one who gets the other two main characters on board with the rebel cause. She's the start of it. And when they find her in the Death Star, that's where we're expecting this damsel in distress story because they go in, I'm Luke Skywalker. 
I'm here to rescue you. And she's like, great, let's roll. I mean, he just says it, right? Yeah. And what does she say? Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? That's right. That's great, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but she doesn't come with him until he says that he's there with Ben Kenobi. Uh, and then she's like, oh, that's the person oh, that's I really right. want to see. She's got, so she has her priorities in order. Yeah. She's, and she's then learned the, to be smart about it. She's not just going to jump at the first rescue attempt. Right. And then they go out into the, in, into the cell block, of course, and they're in the firefight. It's just this great moment during the firefight. And she says, this is some rescue. You came in here and you didn't have a plan for getting out. Uh, and then, of course, Hans says something. And then she says, somebody has to save our skins. And she grabs Luke's blaster, blows the hole in the trash compactor chute, and jumps down into the garbage chute. Uh, and their others follow. And so she's really the one who affects her own rescuing in the end. Yeah, they opened the cell door, but that's the last thing that they they, they did in that moment. Um, and of course, Han then is just incredible misogynist throughout the rest of that sequence, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and then later she shows her tactical cunning when she realizes the Empire let them go. She says it right there while they're on the Falcon. You know, Han mm -hmm. says, well, pretty good bit of rescuing, right? And she says, she's like, oh. let us go. That's the only uh, reasonable explanation for our escape. I like that she really is able to put them in, in their place in that moment and see beyond just like, I am a hero of seeing why, why would that have happened? Exactly. And then she realizes, talking about sacrifice earlier, that the only way to protect the galaxy is to continue taking the Millennium Falcon to the Rebel base. Because they know that the Empire's tracking them. She, she has intuited that. She understands that they let them go on purpose because they're tracking them. So they could easily have gone somewhere else to protect the Rebels. Mm. But she has just seen her home planet destroyed. She knows that she, of everybody here, she's the only one that really knows the true destructive power of the Death Star. And so she says, I have to gamble everything on this. I know that the plans of the Death Star are in R2-D2. We have one chance to know where this Death Star is, and it's following us. So let's get to Yavin 4. Let's see if we can figure out a way to, to blow up this thing, and let's do it right now. Because if we don't do it now, we're going to have to find it again somewhere in the galaxy, and who knows if we're going to get another chance at this. So you can really see the, the calculation that she has there. And they bet it all, and thankfully, Luke is able to, to blow it up. Um, but it's all based on Leia's uh, cunning and uh, ability to play those odds and say, no, this is, this is the, the hand that we've been dealt, and we've got to go all in. I think that, yeah, that ability to determine her priorities, this came up a little bit in the pilot's episode talking about the sequels with Poe, that she's kind of put, they have this tension between the two of them because she's thinking about so many different things and really trying to keep a lot of pe moving pieces in her mind. She really takes on that politi that general role of, the, of directing where people need to go and having that authority. And the general role that she takes on there in the sequels is prefigured by a really good novel called Bloodline by an author named Claudia Gray, who's the best current Star Wars novelist. Hmm. Um, in Bloodline, we get the whole story of Leia uh, as a senator of the New Republic who is running now for, to take over for Mon Mothma as the leader of the New Republic. And it comes out in this book that she is Darth Vader's daughter. They have kept that secret for oh. almost 30 years. Uh, and so her political career is completely thrown into turmoil. 
everything is going wrong. And at the same time that all of this is going wrong and this revelation has happened, she's starting to notice that there's something funky going on in that corner of space. And she's the one who figures out and uncovers what's ever happening to begin the first order. And that's when she organizes the resistance because her political career is over, thankfully, because she's not on Hosnian Prime when it gets obliterated by uh, Starkiller Base. But she starts the resistance because she has been able to put the pieces together of what's about to happen. And we see that same wonderful uh, tactical mind that she's always had. And she moves into the general role. She's she has shed the princess persona completely, partly because her planet was destroyed and she's no longer a princess of anything, um, except for the remnant of Alderanians mm-hmm. who were not on the planet at the time. Last thing to say about Leia, uh, talking about princesses saving themselves. Uh, in Return of the Jedi, she does the same thing by killing Jabba the Hutt. Because, you know, she straggles Jabba the Hutt yeah. with her own chains. Yeah, that, that's a huge symbol there, I think. Like, even it, she's in the metal bikini, she's at her most vulnerable mm-hmm. costume-wise, and she's able to affect change. So talk to me about Zelda. Oh, boy. Um, so I, I played Ocarina of Time, played a little bit of Majora's Mask and Twilight Princess, but my favorite and the most immersed immersive uh, Zelda game I've ever played was the most recent Breath of the Wild. And I was interested playing this as a person in her late 20s um, because Zelda, despite being the, the heroine in the, the title, Legend of Zelda, I don't remember. I mean, she has some activity in the earlier in the earlier games, but in Breath of the Wild, she is so much the main character. Link is kind of, and always has been, a bit of a cardboard box of a character that you can pour yourself into. Um, but all the f- part of Breath of the Wild is that he has lost his memory and he's sort of recovering these memories. And spoiler alert, a lot of the memories are about Zelda and her struggle. Um, he's a chosen one. He's got the sword, but she has the power to seal the darkness. And she struggles to actually have that power to employ it and causes a lot of self-doubt. And so I love that her ability to grow and it comes out in a moment of self-sacrifice spoiler alert sorry um (laughs) her her power connects and she's able to for the next hundred years hold off ganon until link can arrive and and sort of strike the killing blow so she's a pretty cool heroine i also like in ocarina of time she comes back as as another character she's disguised as chic cross-dressers again another cross-dresser that's right with martial prowess new tropes there's a new trope there so she's, I, and I, I know there's a move among like Zelda fans to get her to be a playable character. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't yeah. just, people think it shouldn't just be Link. I think it would be so cool to have a co-op game where you've got mm. like your your ranger in, in Zelda and your magic user and then your up close melee fighter in Link. That would be really cool. That would be so cool. What we should do, we'll do, we'll do a D&D one shot where you can play Zelda. Awesome. And we'll, we'll get your husband to play Link. <laughs> How's that uh, sound? We'll see. We'll, we'll see. That would be great. All right. <laughs> so another cross-dressing heroine yes. we have is Eowyn from ah, Lord of the Rings. You want indeed. to tell us a little bit about her? Oh my gosh, Eowyn. Um, so uh, we, we did her quote at the beginning uh, of this episode, uh, that beautiful quote, which is from the book and then is also quoted in the movie. And Miranda Otto does such a good job of delivering that line in the movie when Aragorn says, what do you fear, lady? And she says, a cage. And her response to that question really shows 
what we've been trying to uncover over the course of this episode uh, is the the heroism at the base of the princess trope. The archetype of the princess has evolved to this point of heroism being its main feature. But Tolkien wrote Eowyn around the same time as Sleeping Beauty. And how different are those two? Oh my I mean, you goodness. can't. And so he's, and, and of course, The Lord of the Rings is 98% male. Sure. And, and Tolkien is writing within a particular worldview. And he somehow managed to write this absolutely incredible female character. She's really the only female character beyond Galadriel. But Eowyn has this wonderful story. Because she's in love with Aragorn. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But mm-hmm. everybody's kind of in love with Aragorn. The male <laughs> characters are in love with Aragorn. Theoden's in, in love, love with, with Aragorn. Yeah. Aragorn is the king. He is the charismatic leader. You're, you're kind of supposed to fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. So even, even if she is that, she's not really ever a love interest for him, though. Right, he's focused on It's unrequited. Also. It's always yes. unrequited, at least in, an, in a romantic way. But he it doesn't cripple her. It does not cripple her, and he also loves her. Um, there, it's just it's just kind of the kingly love for his people, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then, of course, yeah. Talk talk to us about cross dressers because we have now we have three. We've got Zelda, we've got Mulan, and we've got Eowyn. Is that is that all of them? Well, those are the ones that we've talked about. Those are the ones we've talked about. So they kind of fulfill this role of having to step into a man's place, but it, by disguising themselves, but then accomplishing their ends through less than typical means. And I love, I haven't read the books in a while, but I'm remembering the movie scene, which is going to be forever ingrained in my mind when the witch king of Angmar is saying, you know, no man can kill me to Eowyn. And she pulls off her helmet, her long blonde hair flows out and she says, I am no man and stabs him in the face. In the face, so, yes. In the or face. Or where his face should be, where at least. His, yeah, and then he crumples. Um, so yeah, that it's so good. She uses that guise of a man to get her to where she is, and then in the moment, it's actually going against the prophecy and kind of foiling it in an interesting way. Apparently, Miranda Otto had to, had to get smashed by that Witch King, like, 20 or 30 times before, oh, before, like, as they did take after take after take, and she just stood in there and kept kept fighting of course the the take that they use is just this great kind of primal guttural scream from her as she's jabbing the sword into his face so we have one final princess that's worth mentioning even if she's a little different than the others introduced by the marvel cinematic universe and that's the princess shuri of wakanda and i love her i mean she is smart she is sassy she will put her older brother in line and she will in the end prove herself to be a very fierce warrior fierce and smart yes she is the scientist who can put tony stark and bruce banner in their place It's time for the podcast for Nerdy Christians Book Club. We are reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Maybe you're reading along with us, but if not, here's a recap of chapters six and seven. August passes uneventfully as the Dursleys pretend Harry doesn't exist. On September 1st, they abandon Harry at King's Cross Station, where there is certainly no platform crammed between nine and ten. After a few desperate minutes rushing about, Harry overhears a family of red-haired people talking about muggles. 
After three of the four boys vanish somehow, Harry screws up his courage and asks the mother if she can help him. The kindly woman sends him through the barrier ahead of her last son, and there before Harry is the gleaming scarlet steam engine, the Hogwarts Express. Harry finds a compartment to himself at the back of the train, where Fred and George Weasley discover his identity. Then he eavesdrops on the Weasleys' loving farewells, such a contrast to the Dursleys' cruel departure. The youngest Weasley, Ron, joins Harry in the compartment, and they get along well, bonding over hand-me-down clothes. Harry buys an armload of snacks, and he and Ron eat their way through them. It's a nice feeling, having something to share and someone to share it with. Ron explains a whole load about wizarding things, Quidditch, Hogwarts house prejudice, the perils of Bertie Bot's every flavor bean. Harry opens his first chocolate frog and gets a card of Albus Dumbledore. The card says something about a duel with Grindelwald and alchemy work with a partner named Nicholas Flamel. Oh, J.K. Rowling, hiding important details in insignificant places. He'll never get old. They meet the unfortunately named Neville Longbottom and Muggleborn Hermione Granger, to whom the author does everything to make the audience dislike her. Then there's Draco Malfoy and his goons. We definitely don't like them either. Some wizarding families are better than others, blah, blah, blah. They arrive at Hogwarts and take the ceremonial boat ride across the lake. Also, Ron has a rat named Scabbers. Hold on to that until book three. Neville has a toad called Trevor. You don't need to hold on to that at all. And he doesn't, ever. <laughs> Chapter seven, The Sorting Hat. The first years get shoveled off onto a holding area off the Great Hall where Professor McGonagall gives them some vague instructions as to what is about to happen. Then she leaves and the students see some ghosts. The ghosts are only sporadically important, so you can forget about them for long stretches, like until book seven, actually. After a bit, McGonagall returns and ushers the terrified first years into the Great Hall, which is a spiffing room with floating candles and a ceiling bewitched to look like the sky outside. Four long tables, one per house, fill most of the room, with a head table for teachers at the end of the hall. The first years parade down the hall and wait to be sorted. McGonagall places a scruffy-looking hat on a stool, and just when Harry thinks he might need to pull a rabbit from it, the hat starts singing. The gist is that the hat will look inside the first year's heads to see what house they belong in. Then it sings about the houses. Basically, Gryffindors are brave, Hufflepuffs are loyal, Ravenclaws are smart, and Slytherins are ambitious. But let's all hate on Hufflepuff. Who needs justice, loyalty, and patience anyway? The first years are sorted alphabetically with Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville, plus some minor characters going to Gryffindor. Although the hat took extra long deciding on both Neville and Harry. Draco Malfoy is a Slytherin, of course. After the sorting, they eat a feast which magically appears on their plates. Where'd all that food come from? Wondered no one at all. Certainly not from enslaved labor in the kitchens below. But what's this? The villain appears. Professor Snape is talking to Professor Quirrell. When Snape looks over at Harry, Harry's scar flashes with pain. But it's gone just as soon as it came. And Harry tucks into his treacle tart. Treacle is molasses, by the way. The chapter ends with a weird Hogwarts school song and a long trek up to the Gryffindor Tower. They're stopped briefly by a character so insignificant he doesn't even make it into the films. And then they go to bed. Harry has a nightmare in which he is wearing Professor Quirrell's strange turban, which tells him to transfer to Slytherin. But when he wakes up, he doesn't remember the dream at all. All right. Uh, what do you want to talk about? One of the main themes I saw emerging from these two chapters is the idea of taking a leap of faith. Mm. 
like going through the platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in your summary that the Dursleys abandoned Harry. I think a lot of his at the at the train station. So mm-hmm. much of these early chapters, the magical world is so uncertain for him. Mm. So the fact that he asks them to take the Dursleys to take him to the train station, he has to take a leap of faith in doing that, just getting to the train, takes a leap of faith getting onto the platform. And even later, putting on the sorting hat is placing his fate in someone else's hands. Mm. I think it, it showed me that like he can make the decision to know, okay, I'm a wizard and I'm going to go to the school, but it doesn't mean that he's free from doubt and from mm. fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which would make sense considering that he's grown up in this household where the only thing he can rely on is the neglect of the Dursleys. So when they abandon him, it's kind of shocking to the reader, but not all that shocking to Harry. He's like, yeah, yeah, they're fine. Okay. It kind of stuck out to me when I was rereading when he's on the train. So he's made that first leap, getting through the barrier, getting on the train. And then he's, it says as London disappears behind him that Harry felt a great leap of excitement. He didn't know where he was going to, but it was had to be better than what he was leaving behind. And he still gets fearful in the, in, at that after that, but he knows that it's been a good decision to move forward. And I think that meeting Mrs. Weasley has got to be the most comforting thing that could have happened in that moment. He goes up to her and talk about another leap, going up, mm-hmm. talking to, to a, stranger. a stranger. Now, uh, apparently a fairly safe stranger because she's got kids around her and, and so forth. And he's and, and she's so kind to him. Right. In that there's moment. Some, yeah. There's so much motherliness. I, I was interested also in how many of the characters get main characters get introduced in these chapters. And like your first shot of Molly Weasley encapsulates her perfectly. She's mothering, she's kind. She's patient. She's gentle. Well, she's not always patient, but <laughs> well, that's just parents. It's okay. But um, she's so she's so helpful to him and understanding. So I just want to pop something. You talk about meeting a bunch of the main characters here. I saw a tweet from Lin Manuel Miranda a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. which just was the best thing I've ever read, and it was the fact that he in Hamilton decided to have. Hamilton meet Burr before he met the rest of his friends. Mm. He modeled that on Harry Potter meeting Draco before he met Ron and Hermione. No way. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't that just the best? It's another little trivia tidbit I love. Harry is panicking uh, when he's on the platform. Um, And it's not until the Weasleys show up that he starts to calm down a little bit. Well, he panics panics later too when the sorting hat is kind of trotted out and he worries like, what if it just sits there on my head for so long that McGonagall tells me it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So he's accepted. If we're looking at this as a parallel for like accepting one's vocation or, or taking a, a leap of faith in Christ, for example, you can do that and still think, what if this isn't right? What if I'm not right mm-hmm. for this? Yeah. It's, it doesn't all happen at once. When, when we do take that leap of faith, it's like you're still in the air, you know, for a long time. Or you land and there's another leap and another leap and another yeah. leap. It, or <laughs> or you're like, you stumble a bit. You're like the, the scene in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade where he has to take the leap from the lion's mouth and he throws mm. the, you know, it, 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 afterwards he throws the dirt on it so he knows where the thing is. But the first thing, he takes a step out into the middle of nowhere and then realizes he's on a platform. But the platform is still really hard to see. Yeah. And, he's, and he makes it across the chasm. So each step is, is another little leap. And there's, there's so much about the magical world that maybe Harry doesn't, he doesn't know. And 
it's scary to proceed into something you have no idea about. So another, another theme I saw here was kind of acclimating to the magical world that he's, he's being introduced to a lot of things like the sweets by Ron. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and by the end of the chapters, he's getting used to it. He's starting to get used to it. And acclimating both to the wonder of the magical world and at the same time acclimating to the, the prejudices of the same world. Because again, we have um, Malfoy come in and talk to him about mixing with riffraff like the Weasleys. Some wizarding families are better than others. All of that, it, the hierarchy, uh, which Harry doesn't necessarily believe because he knows that Malfoy is the bad guy. But just hearing the that, and even Ron parrots some of that back, you know, uh, talking about, well, you know, loads of people come from Muggle families and they learn quick enough. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're still having that bifurcation uh in there whereas by the end of the books you kind of forget actually it becomes important in the second book when muggleborns are being targeted but you don't really know people's blood status until it becomes important because of prejudice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of prejudice we still have a little less vestige of uncle vernon's where he says you know funny way to get to a wizard school the train magic carpets all got punctured have they no, they've just been yeah. outlawed. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's more stereotyping. He's This is an interesting thing here because he's doing something very common, which is mm-hmm. using a popular image of something you do not understand to characterize the whole thing that you do not understand. Oh, interesting. And we do that with everything that we know a little bit, only a little bit about. You know, something that we are prejudiced against, we are going to take one little thing from whatever that is and have it stand in for the whole thing. And that's what Uncle Vernon is doing right here. And Harry does it too uh, later on with the hat, with the rabbit coming out of the hat. Oh, right. Taking what little he knows about magic and like the popular muggle imagination. And he just literally, Harry can't imagine what's required of him. He has no idea. He, can, he literally cannot picture it because it's totally foreign. And speaking of the life of faith, I mean, it's the same thing. You take that leap of faith and then you're like, okay, I did it. Now what? And how do I move forward? If I can't even, you have so much to learn along the way. And that's why Ron is such an important character to introduce here. Uh, and then, of course, Hermione. And oh, man, I, reading through this again, I was so mad at the author for the way Hermione is introduced. Really? Yes. It, it, she's she's bossy. Nothing wrong with a bossy little girl. See, I think I, I am Hermione. So even as an 11-year-old reading about a bossy, kind of nosy I'm going to fix all your problems, little girl. Eh, But that's reading through my prejudices. I like like that kind of a character. I guess I was seeing it from the the standpoint of like, we're reading this from Harry's perspective. Mm -hmm. When men hear an assertive woman, they hear bossiness. With With Hermione, though, we do, like I said, I get that negative impression of her at first, but underneath the negative impression is her true character. Because what's she doing when she comes into the compartment? She's trying to help Neville. She's helping Neville. And who else is going to help Neville? No, nobody is going to help <laughs> Absolutely Neville. Absolutely nobody. Uh, so we see her true character, even though the description is one where, well, maybe we don't like her. Right. Or maybe she's, she's going to stick her nose in our business. Yeah. yeah we're going to have a little boys club over here and you're not a part of it. So moving on to, uh, to the sorting hat, we, we've talked a little bit about the sorting hat, but uh, it's interesting that McGonagall says that all four houses have noble histories and have produced outstanding witches and wizards. Mm. So she is playing against the whole Hufflepuffs are duffers thing. 
And Slytherins are all evil. Yeah. So uh, there are good people in all four of these houses. Now we have the stereotypes of each house that play mm-hmm. into what people think about them. And I think it just goes to show how much of these books really are from Harry's Gryffindor perspective. So many of the main characters are. We don't really mm-hmm. see how we see a lot of Slytherin in a negative light because that's where his main rivalry is. We don't see those quietly cunning but helpful Slytherins. We don't see the ones that you know have bizarre friendships with Hufflepuffs. So just completely outside of Harry's view. He's not paying attention. We really have to make remember that this whole story is written from Harry's perspective. Yeah. I have a lot of problems with the sorting hat in general because I think it's foolish to take 11-year-olds at the start of their school career, quarter them based on the lowest common denominator of their personality, have them hang out together, live together, take classes together, put all this prejudice on top of them and like house slogan or house, you know, crests and colors and all that, and then expect them to not hate each other. Yeah, I think that that's coming out of a very British Sure. Boarding school culture. Um, but yeah, it can, it can lead to uh, a particular worldview that is just reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. Uh, we get that first mis- misdirection with Snape talking to Quirrell mm-hmm. uh, with, with his back turned. And we obviously, oh, it's going to be Snape. But here we go again. This, I, there's several things in these first couple of chapters of the book that really make me squirm in the descriptions. Again, that Hermione being described as bossy is, is mm-hmm. not as big as this one, but Snape is hook-nosed, which is like this most stereotypical Jewish feature of, of ways that you would mark a Jewish person as, a, as somebody to dislike. I never and, even thought about that. Yeah, so, so by describing him as hook-nosed, all I can see is, is just like using a feature that has been used for centuries mm. to discredit people and we get it with snape because it's it's an easy one for her to use to say okay we don't like this guy also earlier on she says romania and then says africa oh carly's in romania but bill's in africa africa yeah like africa is not it. a country yeah so again that's another lazy yeah. uh lazy thing that but again it's it's casual racism to think of africa as a country not as a select not as a group of countries that's the size of a whole mess of the rest of the world combined. Well, and specifying the only person's skin color who's specified as Dean, who's black. Is Dean, right, yeah. yeah. These were written 20, some, 20, what, 22 years ago, something like that. Um, I wonder if she were writing now, would J.K. Rowling have a little bit more wokeness to some of that stuff? The fans that were raised in these books with the themes of justice and equality and fairness have kind of surpassed her in terms mm. of social awareness to the point where like fans are frustrated when she's like, I would like to get social media points for saying I approve of a black Hermione by saying all I specified was frizzy hair and that she's smart. Therefore yeah. she could be black. It's like, well, a you're taking the most, again, talk about racial stereotypes. Yeah. Frizzy, if wanna, frizzy if hair. If you want to imagine back hair, Hermione being black, frizzy hair and buck teeth are like big front teeth. Yeah. There you go. Are. Those are some really you know, they have been negatively used stereotypes, not that they're inherently negative. Um, but she wants to get points for Dumbledore mm-hmm. being gay, even though there's not a single instance mm-hmm. for a young queer child to read a book and see themselves in the character. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, not a person reading this book who's maybe a person of color is not going to see a lot of positive portrayals. And I think we, we finally get Kingsley Shacklebolt in book five for yes. a black character that actually has some 
you know, bearing on the plot. And, and in a very positive way, I think yeah. he's, yeah. and in the movies, they kind of portray him in like kind of yeah, stereotypical weird, African yeah. robes, even though I think he's from London. Yeah, it's a little, sure. little odd. Next time on our book club, we'll be reading chapter eight, The Potions Master, chapter nine, The Midnight Duel, and chapter 10, Halloween. We'll see you there. Gotcha. But I think that that might be it for us for this episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdychristians. We also have a new Twitter feed at nerdychristians, which I'm trying to entice Carrie to use uh, with memes. We'll see if that actually happens. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. That's where, W-H-E-R-E, thewind.com. Check out my fantasy novels, The Storm Curtain and The Halfling Contagion on my website or amazon.com. I've got a new one coming out in December that's called The Islands of Shattered Glass. You can find us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And now a blessing for all of you princesses. If you've had trials and tribulations... If you think that if you were yourself, it would break your family's heart. If your voice has been drowned out in the thunder, if you've been told to conceal, not feel, or to take the smoothest course, when you're stuck in a provincial life, when home feels so slow, when the voice inside sings a different song, even if you're the girl, the girl who has everything, I pray that God will be with you and bless you. May you climb mountains and cross rivers. May your reflection show who you are inside. May you never go speechless. May you stand in the light of day and find your dreams just around the river bend. May you have adventure in the great wide somewhere and get to a place where the roads are paved with dreams. Happy dreams, not creepy clown dreams. May you know how far you'll go and explore that shore up above. Amen. I saw, I saw Little Mermaid when I was six, and it freaked me the heck out. I was so scared, and I haven't seen it since. Ursula's tale, yeah, I actually don't think I have either, because it's not, I don't like it. I don't love the music. Kiss the Girl has all these weird overtones in the era of Me Too. Um, yeah, seriously. Just, just <laughs> yes, go, she just wants get in you. There. Look just, at her. She knows you do. Just get in there, buddy. Possible right? she wants you to. There's one way to ask her, and that's yeah, which not is using to your ask words. Her. Yeah, let's he's just not ask talking, her. He's not talking about asking her with, her, with his oh, words, because God. God forbid she should nod. Yeah, right, right. Or, or like write something down on a card. Oh, they can't write down, down under the sea. They don't have paper. Oh, okay, well, there is that. You're probably not literate. <laughs>